Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Matthew Shinetti, who covers Canada soccer, the CFL, and much, much more for, for TSN. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show, Matthew. My pleasure, Alex. Uh, I, I, I've heard that you have this amazing shoe collection, and I just wanted to ask you, like, are you wearing some now? Is it is it your own shoes? Like, where did this come from? I'm, I'm so curious. No, I, I don't wear uh, my own sh- shoes in my uh, in my condo. Um, so a few, well, not a few, uh, back uh, almost 20 years ago, um, uh, I stumbled upon my first pair of uh, Converse All-Stars, Chuck Taylors. I uh, decided um, I'd give them a shot, try them on. And the one thing um, kind of about me that, uh, whether it's been throughout my career, whether my time at the national post through to Ryerson, authenticity has been really, really important to me. Um, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways I've, I've kind of tried to be my own, my own person. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that I, you know, would try different styles, different ways of, 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 you know, putting my wardrobe together. And the one thing that has lasted for nearly two decades has been my, my Chuck Taylors. Now, uh, I speaking of the collection, I used to have um, three wall panels made of particle board with little wood pegs in them, uh, yeah. about seventy-five pairs of of Chucks. Um, now that sounds great when you're in your when you're in your mid to late twenties. When as I am now in my late thirties, it sounds kind of it, it 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 creeps into another realm given the fact that these aren't Air Jordans, they're not yeah. uh, Air Max. It's these aren't shoes that you can kind of put into. The realm of a safety deposit box yeah. uh when you wear a converse, converse over time that they, they wear pretty quickly because it's basically yeah. just canvas a, a canvas on vulcanized rubber um, yeah. <laughs> and uh so, so I, I i trim the the collection down to uh, uh i at least in, in in my mind maybe a more reasonable 25 um and donated yeah. the the rest of the shoes oh, but wow. um, okay, the, uh, cool. my uh my converse of, will always be a part of a part of who i am um mm. You know, it's it's getting warmer outside. I can move from the uh, the, the Chuck boot to to maybe a more uh, maybe a more stylish. Uh, well, I've got a few kind of colorful uh, pairs of Chucks. Uh, so it's 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 been part of who I am. And when I went to TSN, mm-hmm. um, when I was learning how to wear a suit, tie a tie. Uh, as soon as I got down to the dress shoes, I was like, this isn't this the the wingtips, the Oxford mm-hmm. shoe. It wasn't for me. Uh, and the story I've told a million times is my first uh, assignment on air for Sports Center was covering the Leafs and the Devils back uh, over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wore a black suit with red tie and wore a, pair, a red pair of chucks, which did not go over well in the uh, uh, in the press box at at um, uh, at Scotiabank Arena. But what I'm happy to see now is, and I do not claim to be somebody who did it first, but yeah. there were a lot of people wearing wearing sneakers with suits back then. But to see how much it's kind of grown as an expression, uh, not just mm-hmm. in 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 sports journalism, but really ac- uh, across uh, so many mm-hmm. occupations, is really cool to see. And and when you go on TV, is it do you pick like is it part of how you kind of do your job? Like, do you feel it's very much a part of you? That's a great question. You know what it is for me. I uh, it all depends on the mood that I, that I'm in, what I'm looking, what I'm looking to wear. I used to have most outrageous colors, and and yeah. sometimes it would just be. Um, I knew on a football field, people talk about you know hockey. Certainly, you know all yeah. of the, all of the tropes in hockey and 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 all mm-hmm. of the um, all the things that encompass hockey culture. Um, 
you know, football is, is that, and it's into a, maybe a factor of 10. And I mean, I mm -hmm. remember wearing pink, ch pink chucks and, and getting kind of like, I, I will respectfully say they were quizzical looks from, from, from mm -hmm. coaches from the United States. But the fact for, for me was, I was just like, I don't really care what you think. This is who I am. This is yeah. what I enjoy doing. And for me um, also having never done television before, you know, 10 years ago, it was a way of, of me kind of, you know, kind of forcing myself to really stay mentally locked in. Cause I was like, listen, mm. if I'm on television in this atmosphere, wearing these shoes, I always have to bring my best. I always have to be aware. And yeah, some nights I wasn't, uh, I, 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 I didn't necessarily maybe in my own, you know, younger in, in, in the way I perceived my job back then, maybe I wasn't measuring up to the, to the style I was trying to put out there, but it, but for me, it was like, this is who I am. This is mm -hmm. what I'm, this is what I'm about. Um, and I, this is going to be part of my brand, my persona, who right. I am. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe there's, uh, it's kind of a, one, in one sense, it was an anchor for me uh, psychologically. Mm -hmm. And, and in another sense, it was um, kind of a way for me to, to kind of say, Hey, listen, I'm creating, I'm creating a brand here. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe haphazardly in the beginning, but uh, I think it's all worked out in the end. And, and with your, your career, when did you first, think you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism and writing uh so uh, initially when i went i wanted to get into uh, tmu's uh, undergraduate program for for journalism this is back a long long time ago now uh and when i was coming out of high school uh i was like okay i'm was deciding what i wanted to do and and it didn't necessarily work out i moved on to, to york university um and their professional writing course, I, I started to write, started to realize I enjoyed writing um, mm -hmm. and was doing different kinds of writing, which was which I think I'm I'm quite happy that I tried to do. I did political writing and mm. some, some um, non some fiction writing. Uh, and it, it kind of helped me maybe grow an understanding of, you know, on top of reading. And I always tell people that's the most essential thing that you can do as a mm -hmm. as a young writer is read as much as you can. Uh, and then freelancing i freelanced for so many different publications uh mm -hmm. and then was able to get to the tmu's graduate program in journalism where i was very very fortunate to to try again from doing streeters to doing mm -hmm. magazine writing to doing online writing and and every step of the way i just kept on pushing myself to try something different i you know i look back on my career at this point and i mm -hmm. always i often say i didn't necessarily have an endpoint. i i always was just trying to put myself maybe in, in various stages of discomfort because I wanted to prove to myself that I could over time build new skills, try new things, put myself in position to, to be at events and in situations where I could really show my abilities. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it different, it, it didn't. But what I was, what I've always been happy with is the ability to, to keep pushing and keep trying and keep, keep being creative. And uh, when, you know, going from, a national post internship to the CBC internship to working mm -hmm. at CBC full-time to, or as a contract full-time and then moving back on to, to the national post. And that eventually got me to TSN. Um, when I look back on my career, I've always tried to stay present um, with mm -hmm. every, with everything I was doing and be like, I'm going to execute 
this objective as best as I can. And then once it's done, it's done. And I literally mm -hmm. wipe it from my, my, my mm -hmm. mind. And as I, the older I get, sometimes I, I, I kind of sit back and say, you know, I can, I can kind of relish these things and pat myself on mm -hmm. the back because of all of the very fortunate to have done and accomplished certain things. But what's always worked for me in terms of understanding my career and being a writer is, you know, looking at those who come before me, I was a big fan of Gary Smith with Sports Illustrated, quite respected mm -hmm. Chris Cuthbert, Rod Smith, James mm -hmm. Duffy, um, spent time alongside Bruce Arthur at the National Post. Uh, watching all of them and their process really helped inspire me to say, hey, listen, if I get an opportunity, I'm going to be creative. I'm going to try something new. I'm going to appreciate the opportunity to really um, take this sense of discomfort that I guess I enjoy being in and, and pushing and pushing myself to see where my abilities can go. And and with you mentioned how interested in pushing yourself as a writer now at TSN you you're on air a lot was that something where you pushed yourself to kind of into the discomfort of being a sideline reporter being on TV or was that something you really wanted to try out you know it, it, when I lost my when I lost my when my contract ended at the National Post and um when I got the opportunity to go to TSN, it was, as I said, it was my way of being like, okay, I have to try something new. And it was scary. I mean, I was somebody who didn't necessarily, didn't necessarily consider myself a particular kind of extrovert. I was somebody who enjoyed, you know, he classified me as being bookish, but I enjoyed um, spending time on my own and, and kind of learning the act of writing. But the one thing about writing especially is, unless you put yourself in, in upfront face forward situations, you know, the experience, you don't necessarily have maybe the experiences um, that, that, that you would if, um, if you weren't doing that. So I, when I got to TSN, having to be on live TV, having to try, um, you know, wearing a suit, holding a microphone, all of that is, is, is presentation and process. Uh, but really what it boils down to is the willingness to kind of put yourself out there because you're the, you're the face of it all of a sudden. And that's something that was brand new to me. And it was, it was scary. And I, you know, you can find on YouTube, I blew a live head and it was, you know, this is almost 10 years ago now. And it was a changing, it was a real moment where things changed for me because I remember kind of pulling myself aside mentally and being like, okay, if you're really going to try this, if you're going to give mm -hmm. this opportunity, the respect it deserves, then you're going to have to put yourself in extreme discomfort, which is now live TV is one of the, my favorite things to do. Now, hmm. you know, I've, I have process in a way of which I, 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 I prepare myself for every live event, but it's now become the thing that I sit back and say, when I'm ready to go and I'm ready to do it, I, I have the most fun doing this and mm -hmm. that this is live TV. And if you had told me five years ago, that would have been the case. I would have probably maybe been been a little skeptical but you know five years before that i would have told you you're crazy and now i find mm -hmm. myself you know coming off of doing the world cup and several great cups and you know covering every manner of sport that you that you possibly can at, at tsn and feeling like wow you know i've been very fortunate mm -hmm. but that fortune has come from me being like okay put yourself in that discomfort and give it a shot because you don't you won't know until you try yeah and and you come off so natural on tv um is that something like with tv like what is your process to be so prepared um on on live tv uh yeah i'll i'll put it back to a um a, a friend and and someone i consider a mentor and who was a coworker of mine uh, dean willers who is a uh, a cameraman at tsn longtime cameraman 
actually also a former NHL, NHL draft pick from mm. Red Wings many, 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 many years ago. Uh, and he would tell me, um, you know, give yourself a mental game. And the mental game would be, you know, give me 30 seconds on baseball caps. And the whole point of that was, if you look at some of the live hits that we do, we tend to get anywhere between 30 to 45. Now, sometimes we can push it when you're at a major event, you know, mm-hmm. you get live hits for a minute and a half, two minutes. I've had a live minute, a live hit that's pushed into five minutes. And, um, but to prepare yourself mentally for that, it's all of the notes that you're trying to make. So you don't sound like you're rambling. And so for, you know, 30 seconds, give me something on baseball caps in terms of the hit, maybe the history of it, the utility of it. Some famous mm-hmm. people want baseball caps some of your favorite baseball caps. And, and, for, you know, I, I point to that because over 10 years of, and I will, you know, freely admit it, trying it on my own. And sometimes it, it comes across as me talking to myself, but it's, it would just be literally be like, okay, I would point to something and try to, and try to explain it over um, the course of 30 seconds. And also, trial and error in terms of what my process is am i someone who writes copious amounts of notes do i remember all of those notes am i somebody who really focuses on um uh, certain aspects of you know live preparation whether it be as i said note taking or do i need to be so in tune with my producer or with me i found my process was be prepared write your notes down um rehearse it a little bit my energy level has to be so high. Like I have, in, mm-hmm. in order for me to be incredibly engaged, I have to be incredibly like excited, like bring my energy level up and mm-hmm. then calm myself down. And, and the, you know, the last little bit of, of, of uh, which I also got from another camera man, Mark Millette, when I started, which is every time you go on live TV and it's a bit of a, it, 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 and I totally uh, enjoy it and accept it. It's become a bit of a, uh, something I'm known for at TSN. If, you know, in the newsroom, when they're putting pieces together, just before I go into life, and, as I always take a breath, I always just close my eyes and take a big deep breath mm-hmm. in and then I'm ready to go, which is I have all this energy. I've got all these things coming and then all of a sudden take a breath and everything just releases and relaxes and then I'm, I'm ready to go. So it's been a lot of trial and error. It's been a lot of time, a lot of practice, a lot of patience, um, certainly on TSN's part and my coworkers part. But now I've come point, I've come to the point in my career where I'm, where, you know, I come off of, again, I point to the world cup and being like, I'm, you know, the, the, whatever the situation, whatever, whatever the stage, wherever I am, um, if I'm prepared like that, I'll be good to go. Mm -hmm. And what was your experience? I know you've covered Olympics, but just to be at a World Cup and covering Canada, what was that like for you? It's it's the greatest honor of my professional career, um, simply because when you think about that event, I was, the you know, in, in terms of what my job is. And when you go to an event like that, you do your job. You don't, there's so many moving parts. It's hard to kind of articulate the way it is because the Olympics is, such a staged um uh in a lot of ways it's a staged process where once you get into the to the flow of it every sport's like every sport it's it's there's mm-hmm. your mix zone there's your live locate like it's 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 it, it it it's something where once you know all the steps to the dance it's pretty smooth and, and pretty easy over the course of two weeks uh for the world cup it's you have three games and for us the, that first game against belgium we had we had prepared uh I don't know, uh, two years for it. And we've gotten, mm-hmm. even though we know, didn't know a can was facing Belgium, we had done the work for two years to prepare for that. And so 
that's one kind of level of pressure where you're like, okay, you've rehearsed this for two years. Don't screw it up. And then once that, once that game is done, you've got three days to prepare for another three hour pregame mm-hmm. show, which you don't know what you were doing until everything is kind of processed yeah. over the neck, over the, you know, following 24, 48, 72 hours leading up to um, that Croatia game. And then again, again, against the game against Morocco. Um, so I just trusted my job as a, as a reporter in that position, someone who put some features together and I trusted my interactions with my coworkers, uh, whether it was Julian Guzman, uh, James Duthie, Janine Becky, Kevin Kilban, Stephen Caldwell, Luke Wildman, and then how you're working with your producers. And then you have to you throw in the fact that you're thousands and thousands of miles away from, from Toronto and you're, you know, the technological challenges that could present themselves. And, when you realize all of that, you realize the enormity of the thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then you distill it down to: this is my job. All I have to worry about is my job. Um, it becomes so fun, and knowing that someone in my role and really are tired, like we we were doing something that, from a men's World Cup perspective, had a Canadian broadcaster had not done really ever. Mm-hmm. And so, because we were going into un, you know an uncharted territory, it was. It was scary and fun. And, you know, I look back on it now knowing that, wow, there was a lot of pressure on us and a lot of expectation. And yet um, I think we did all did an excellent job. And and I come away with it feeling very proud and very privileged because your your whole frame of reference opens up because you get to see, especially when you go to a country like Qatar. And I was also able to go to United Arab Emirates and, mm-hmm. and Bahrain in that region for, for some other games that Canada was, was playing pre-tournament and excuse me, it just opens up your frame of reference and what the world is like. And that's the one thing above being able to, to actually physically do the events. The, you know, I feel fortunate to say that I've traveled really the world doing this job mm-hmm. and knowing that and accepting that and, and, uh, understanding that um, that those opportunities don't come along very often again makes me feel mm-hmm. like I'm pretty 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 lucky to do this job. Mm-hmm. And and what do you think the impact of Canada making the World Cup will have on Canadian soccer going down the line? I think it's a I think it's a question we're still evaluating right now. Uh, we won't truly know the answer for ten years, 10, 15 years, because imagine the kids who were up at ten a.m. five minutes in. Um, who watched Tejan Buchanan street down the right side, put a perfect ball in for Alfonso Davies. And for the first time ever, um, Canada felt what every country in the world feels when, when their nation scores the world cup. And it's this, this just unbelievable energy. And I was in the stadium when it happened. And even I, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I can describe to you now sitting in the chair on the field, all of a sudden, Davy scores. Now I didn't cheer, but I got up out of my seat as if this like momentum took me. And, you know, imagine the young boys and girls who have watched the Canadian women win a gold medal just a little over a year before that, you know, the young boys and girls who had been following this team and, and seeing Alfonso Davies playing at Bayern Munich and Tejan Buchanan playing in Europe. And now Kyle Laird doing so well in La Liga, Mm -hmm. all of these players doing so well and, and, and doing something that no Canadian when you talk about the men or the women over the last, you know, you, you think about Christine Sinclair and whatever, and everything that's happened since they did the U 20 women's world cup in Edmonton 20 years ago to this point now, and you've seen all of these players, 
these young these young soccer players from across the country have embraced the sport and it's it's incredibly cool it's awesome and and now we have 2026 coming up in in less than three and a half years and i've said this at nausea people don't know what's coming i mean i live uh right by exhibition place and the world cup is mm-hmm. literally going to be across the street from where i live and it's yeah. It's now knowing that there's going to be potentially more games that Canada's going to have both at BMO Field and at um, at BC Place in Vancouver. There is something, there's an energy that you can't describe when you're around people from all over the globe who've come to say, I'm watching a soccer game. And, you know, I was very fortunate after Canada was eliminated to go watch two games. I watched uh, Cameroon versus Brazil, and then I watched mm-hmm. uh, the United States versus the Netherlands in the round of 16. And it's just to see that there's this thing on this planet, like culturally billions of people, uh, we all point to as a, as a form of expression, as a language that we all can understand when you see it in real time, it's, it's, it's overwhelming because you're just like, there's, these are 90,000 people, not just watching like a, uh, you know, this isn't the Super Bowl, which is this kind of, yes, FIFA and the world cup can, can be seen as this, you know, contrived event, but, it's it's so international and it speaks to so many people from all over the world that it transcends that 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 sense of a financial transaction where you look at the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl really is this just huge yeah. you know it's this it's really it's it's this huge I don't want to go on and say about capitalism but I will I will say yeah. it it yeah. is it is this huge money making venture that just happens to be centered around a football game. The World Cup is is the way that we talk to each other through soccer. And and knowing that there are young boys and girls in this country who are seeing Canadians excel in that stage over the course of time, over the next, as I said, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that's when you'll see the real impact of 2022. Well, the women win the, the women win the Olympic gold, then the men qualify for 2022, whatever the women do in 2023 this summer, and then 2026. Mm-hmm. And and with the women, like uh, uh, there's two points, but the first one, but I want to talk about the the project aid, obviously, which people might not know, which is the new women's league coming in 2025. How do you think that will kind of impact the women's game in this country? I've I know Diana Matheson personally. I count her as a as a friend, um, and I there isn't no more capable person to prepare Canada for um, for the ability to financially support and then for the country to really embrace a woman's league like Diana Matheson, someone who authored one of first, I, I think she really did put together the, one of the first great moments in Canadian soccer history, mm-hmm. scoring the goal against France in the 2012 Olympics to earn Canada a bronze medal. Uh, and then to see how closely she worked with the women's team and was a part of 2020, uh, 2016 winning another bronze medal, but overall just her investment, her intelligence, her dedication, her drive, her passion for sport, but particularly women's sport in this country. Um, and to see that she's gotten CIBC on board and um, Canadian tire on board, like these, this is not insignificant. It's, it, mm-hmm. it really isn't. And I know again, when we look at this country, this is still a hockey country and it's always going to be and in regional in a regional sense, you know, least fans are least fans and, and Canadians fans are Canadians fans and Oilers flames, so on and so on. But Diane Matheson is trying to do something that transcends all that. And we see, you know, certainly the beginnings of that with the Canadian premier league, because it's supposed to be a vehicle to, you know, it's one of the prerequisites in order to get the men's world cup here. 
But this is different. Making a sustainable, successful women's league over time is a way of not just engaging another level of soccer, but it's bringing a whole segment, a whole market share, if you want to look at it from a business perspective. But really, you're looking at young women and saying, there is a path for you, as what the PWHA is trying to do, obviously, mm -hmm. and then the, um, the Professional Women's Hockey League is, as well. Like, allowing young women uh, and then members of the LGBT, LGBTQ2 plus IA community say, listen, you belong. You have you have a place that where you can showcase your talents, and that's important. Um and I think Diana Matheson has taken the time, has given herself enough of a, a runway leading up to 2025 to say, really, when you think about the kickoff towards the World Cup, again, as a savvy, savvy businesswoman, Diana Matheson is saying, I'm going to be, we're, we're going to kick this off. You're going to get ready for the 2026 mm -hmm. World Cup, watching some of the most exciting young female talent in the world playing in a Canadian women's soccer league. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, and like I, I, it's it's awesome to hear. But there's also been a lot of feuding between, as you've covered with the men's and women's team with the Canadian Soccer Association, and they Nick Bontis just um, resigned, and they have a new head of the organization. And Christine Sinclair talked about at the Heritage Committee about uh, Nick Bontis, you know, kind of saying not the nicest words to her. Do you think that could be something that kind of breaks that momentum of Project Eight, but also the World Cup, or has it already? Uh, that's a great question. Ultimately, this is going to come down to uh, those, you know, Sean Crooks is the new president of uh, the CSA. It's going to come down to Earl Cochran, who uh, who sits in an executive role there. He used to work with Toronto FC. Uh, it's going to come down to the members of the Canada Soccer Business, um, who I think have finally understood that in order to get everyone on side with this very nebulous and um, you could use all kinds of other words to describe what people have thought about the Canada soccer business deal with the CSA, this 10, this 10 year plus 10 year deal. Um, this is a moment where there might, there are certainly those who would go ahead and say that the CSA and CSB have done a tremendous amount um, to, to help promote soccer in this country. And there are those who will say that the only reason they've been able to do that is because we're now in a golden age. Of, we are firmly in the golden age of Canadian soccer. Uh, those two sides have to sit down uh, and, and, and understand that one needs the other um, in whatever iteration that that looks like. Um, but primarily that when we're looking at specifically supporting athletes, when we're looking at um continuing the success of the men's and the women's team. And I've said this publicly before, and I'll say it again. Uh, it is, and it's, you're seeing it start to happen that Canada soccer business and the CSA need to sit down and figure out this deal in the sense of making it appear less like a deal that benefits an unknowable group and more of a deal that looks like it continues to promote and benefit mm -hmm the present and future of Canadian soccer. Because if you listen to every every member who has spoken out on the men's and women's side, they speak about this as kind of like, I don't understand, we're being successful. And yet us as players and the infrastructure of this association and the future is all contingent upon this entity that doesn't, that we don't know, that we don't deal with in Canada soccer mm -hmm. business. So, um, Everyone involved with the CSA and CSB, and there are some very smart and intelligent people there. And 
I know I'm very pleased to know some of the uh, some of the athletes on the women's team, and I know obviously all of all of them on the men's team. Um, we have as I kind of listed out, and I'll you know when you look at the men's, I'll give you the men's schedule in 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 short order: Concacaf Nations League this year, Concacaf Nations League next year, for the opportunity to get into the Copa America. On top of that, you have a Gold Cup this summer and a Gold Cup in 2025, and then you have the World Cup. Uh, if they don't feel like they have the proper resources, then you're going you, the, the consequence that you run into is you're going to have you're going to have players who over time do not feel an attachment to the CSA. And when you look at all the Canadian men, I'm only using the men because um, they, I know them, you know, a little more intimately than I know the women. There are a lot of Canadian men now who are excelling in Europe. Alistair Johnson, Tejo Buchanan, Kyle Lahren, Stefan Estacchio, obviously Alfonso Davies. Over time, that's going to increase. And if there isn't necessarily a strong relationship between the CSA and, and the men's team, then some of these players are going to go ahead and say, why am I playing for Canada when I can go, when I can go ahead and, and, and earn a lot of money and get all the profile I need playing in the major leagues in Europe. I wanted to mention that you, you, you mentioned how that the, uh, the, the women's team and, and the men's team Canada's in right now, this golden age and, and the women's team play uh, uh, the world cup this year. What expectations do you, do you see for this team this year? What should be maybe their goal Going into the World Cup, they just lost Janine Becky, which will be a major impact. But what should be their goal going in? Uh, certainly, I mean, when you judge um, the men's team and the women's team, you can't judge them uh, in the same breath because one team is inside the top 10 and the other team is outside the top 50 or in and around the top 50. And the loss of Janine Becky certainly hurts the women's team. Uh, but remember, this is also a team that still has Christine Sinclair, but has Jordan Heidema, Adriana Leone, Jesse Fleming, um, Kaylin Sheridan. Like, like, like when you have um, some of the most recognizable players, certainly when you take a look at Jesse Fleming, what she's done with, with Chelsea, um, Adriana Leone plays for Manchester United. Um, it's, it is really, really, it is going to be a challenge for the women. And I don't mean challenge in the sense of they're like, it's, it's going to be a challenge um, for the women, certainly without Janine Becky, but this is this is a team that should be looking certainly to to get out of the group stage, obviously, to possibly look to to, to push into the semifinals. And Janine Becky said it before she got her her knee injury. She said this this team could win the World Cup, and that's I think that mm-hmm. you still, if you're Bev Priestman, you still want to have that mentality. Now, everything that's happened, um, certainly with the women, and now looking forward to the next camp, the potential that they could be in a legal strike position certainly doesn't help the situation much in terms of preparation, but they're trying to, as they've said before, they're taking a stand toward um, not just benefiting them, but benefiting future generations of, of, of female players. Does that affect their preparation? Um, less time on the field means less time together means less time installing some of the stuff that Bev Priestman wants to do. Um, yeah, it could hurt them. Um, but uh Knowing some elements of this team, having watched this women's team in various various points over the last few years, uh, this is an experienced team. People kind of forget that, you know, this isn't. It's not just the gold medal. It's not just the the um, Pan American. Like this, this is a team. When you really when you really dig down deep, obviously being so close to the United States and the successes they've had in the women's World Cup and in the Olympics. 
tends to you know it tends to skew the way we might look at the at the um Canadian women's team but this is a team that's won um you know a continental championship has won pan american gold has won two bronze medals has won three olympic medals i mean this is a very successful women's team they're in the top 10 inside the top 10 for a reason um but it's it's when you get to australia and new zealand i think the one thing too that's going to be interesting for them is the travel encompassed as well going from melbourne to perth which is basically going like from toronto to vancouver yeah. over the course of the tournament it will be challenging um but this is a team uh, in what could likely be Christine Sinclair's last Women's World Cup. Uh, this is a team that will be certainly driven, not just because of the successes they've had, but because I imagine, too, what will, what will motivate them is everything that's happening right now with the CSA. Is is there a player in the women's team that you think maybe will be able to break out or you could see breaking out at the event? Uh, I, I always look at Jesse Fleming as someone who has spent so much time being so successful out of very successful team in Chelsea. Um, you know, they get to the, the, the women's champions league, but you can't also discount the fact that her Chelsea team make it. He should be canon as well. Like there's so much talent on this, on this women's team. And, you know, selfishly, I, I, I want Adrienne Leone to get more playing time at Manchester United women's team as they push for mm-hmm. their first uh, women's uh, title uh, in England. So there's, this is a this team is going to succeed as a whole. This team has so many great talents; they're going to succeed as as a whole. Um, but I I think for so long people have wanted to see not more, but they've wanted to see all of Jordan Heidemann's talents, um, and and to know that defensively and in goalkeeping, Canada can consider itself among the top teams in the world. This is if 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 and and Bev Priestman not to dismiss anything that John Herdman did, but you take a look at what Bev Priestman did in a situation like it was in, in Tokyo, a delayed Olympics, not, not in front of a lot of fans, the travel, the protocol, and the fact that Canada kept winning and Canada kept, uh, especially in, in high stress moments, kept succeeding. Uh, whereas maybe in the past, penalty shootouts or important moments or games against the United States, where things wouldn't necessarily have, have broken their way. And the fact that they have a blueprint now for success in essentially there are two tournaments you win. If you're in the women's team, it's mm-hmm. you have to win, you win the Olympics or you win the women's, women's world cup. Those are the significant moments. Uh, those are the significant tournaments for, for, for women's soccer at this point, at least, um, you know, not discounting England winning the euros, but international, but the major international tournaments, uh, Canada has won one of them. Uh, it is not out of the realm of possibility that they could possibly, with that blueprint, win the other one. Hmm. And I wanted to go to the men's team. Uh, obviously, they have an interesting schedule. They play later this week. Uh, later this week, I guess, um, uh, against Honduras and 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 Curacao. Um, what do you make of the team that John Herdman's bringing into camp? Is is it a good enough squad to to win both games in that group? Yeah, it is. It is a good enough squad. Um, but the the challenge that the Canadian men, first of all, many of them have played way too much soccer. Now, some of them got a month off after the World Cup. But when you look at, I'll take two players, for example, Alistair Johnson and Tejavi Cannon, who happen to be in their early 20s, who are so heavy, heavily relied on at their current clubs. Alistair Johnson has come into Celtic under Ange Postacoglu. And I was speaking to him a couple of a couple of um or last or two weeks ago, he said to me, listen, I'm asked to do a lot of things on this team that um, like I'm having to get used to. And 
over the course of his career, he's, and I'm using only using Alistair, he went from his collegiate career where he was a central midfielder to um, a right back, a very, a very defensive minded, aggressive right back. Now he's in a more offensive minded team. And all of this matters because he's played a tremendous amount of football over the last year and a half playing for Nashville, transferred to Montreal, helping Canada qualify for the World Cup, getting into the MLS Cup playoffs, then going over to Celtic immediately in, in, in an old firm derby. You can apply all of those same things to Tejan Buchanan. You can apply all of those things to Stefan Estacchio, who has an injury history. So why am I bringing this up? It's only to say that as well as this team performed, and they did, they performed well at the World Cup. They lost all three games, but they didn't. They didn't lose, apart from the scoreline against Croatia, which was essentially, you know, after that 20 minutes in Canada, using all of the momentum and the adrenaline and energy mm -hmm. to make a statement and scoring their first goal. They were outdone by a far more, far more experienced um, and, and technically savvy Croatian team. But the, when you think about Morocco and, and their run to the semifinals, well, Mor the only team to really give Morocco fits leading up to the semifinals was the second half against Canada. You think about um, certainly Sam Atakubi was able to get the own goal and, and then, and then Atiba Hutchinson scoring. So there has been so much emotional and physical energy that this men's team has used in the last 18 months, two years to get to the world cup play. And now some of them being more successful in Europe. And I spoke to, about, I spoke to John Herman about this a few weeks ago, squad rotation is going to be important. Making sure these guys get rest is going to be important because when you, some of these players could be getting moves in the summertime, Tejan Buchanan has been rumored to be on a move. Jonathan David, who's now, you know, sometimes sometimes when I focus on Alistair Johnson, Tejan Buchanan, Stefan Stacchio, I forget that Jonathan David is, you know, really pushing for uh, the scoring title in Ligue 1 with a, with a little team that is trying to get into the European places, who also is rumored to be on a move as well this summer. So all of these outside factors all of these potential happenings for the men's team means that their focus isn't necessarily always going to be on okay what's the next international window that i have mm -hmm. to do and prepare myself for that there's going to be outside things that they're going to have to get used to and the outside thing that they're going to have to get used to right now that's going to affect john herdman is club versus country jonathan david makes a move to a, a, you know whether england or spain or even germany perhaps how does he weigh that against playing for Canada at the Gold Cup? How does Tejan Buchanan, who's who had an injury um, mm -hmm. early on uh, the beginning of this season, after so much, how does he weigh that with a potential move to England or Italy? How does Alistair Johnston, after playing, you know, MLS football and then moving to Scotland, which is like MLS football, but far more physical uh, and intense and playing on a Celtic team that could also get another domestic treble, how does he balance that? playing for Canada so this is an important window because when you look at as I was explaining the timeline and the map that Canada has over the next three years they have to stay in CONCACAF Nations League A which means they have to be Curacao and they have to stay above that line of being relegated because if they're relegated it might put them irrespective of the new format of the CONCACAF Nations League next year might put them in danger of not qualifying for Copa America and the one thing that's that's critical of all those things I've talked about is that they need high level competition to play against to get ready for 2026. Now with the new now with the rejigged format of 48, 48 teams and yet we're still going to have um groups of groups of four because FIFA was so excited yeah. and we were all so excited after the World Cup. It means that Canada could back its way into the round of round of 32 
uh, with a, uh, you know, finishing in third. But the fact is, you still want to play against high-level talent. You still want to go ahead and get into the Copa America. And as John Herdman has said over and over again, we want these guys to win a trophy. Like the women have already done over and over again. Mm-hmm. They want – the men's team wants to win a CONCACAF Nations League or uh, a Gold Cup or maybe even push to be super competitive in the Copa America. All of these things are – all of these things are true over the next three years – which means although John Herdman is in the best position because he knows these players, he's recruited them, he's also in a difficult position because a lot of these players now are saying, yes, I want to be successful for Canada. It's still true. Tejan Buchanan loves playing. He'll tell mm-hmm. you again and again how much he loves playing with his teammates for the Canadian men's national team. But the fact is, he also wants to have a successful club career and he wants to earn enough money to support himself and his family you know, in a generational wealth kind mm-hmm. of way. And so when those competing interests all of a sudden are, are trying to balance each other out, it could get difficult, but uh, you know the one thing I will I will end off by saying is this: John Herman is a master recruiter and a master motivator. Uh, regardless of some of the the uh, uh, criticism that maybe he, you know, rightly or wrongly, but maybe perhaps constructive criticism he got for some tactical decisions he made during the World Cup. The fact is, he put this team together, and this team likes playing together. Um, but he will he might have to, as he said last last week, dig down deeper to go ahead and find more talent to get ready for this very, very important run the Canadian men have. You mentioned um, Jonathan David and, and Tejan Buchanan maybe having potential summer transfers, and I know you've done reporting on those players. Where do you think those players might go? Do you have any information on those two players? Yeah, it's uh, everything you've heard about Tejan Buchanan is undoubtedly true. Like There are clubs in the EPL who are very interested in Tejan Buchanan, and he had, I can tell you, he had the chance to move to one EPL mm-hmm. team. He could have said yes, and he'd be playing in the Premier League right now. Um, wow. But the best thing for best thing for Tejan Buchanan has always been, I want to be very very clear that I'm moving into a situation that I feel I can be successful. There were reports Inter Milan was another one of those teams, and certainly a report that I I can confirm. But the fact is, all of the when you're looking at being a Canadian now in Europe, Tejan Buchanan is now considered a very cost effective option for a lot of teams in Europe because. Even though Canadians are um, shown to be very talented, um, there's a couple of things that um, that have often worked against them. Passport being one of them. Alistair Johnson kind of got, oh, you know, didn't necessarily deal with that because he's he's a dual citizen, uh, also a yeah. British national, so he was able to go to Celtic a little easier. But with Tejan Buchanan and, and some other players of the men's team, Canada's ranking sometimes hurts them. But the one thing that that works in Tejan Buchanan's favor. The one thing that works in Jonathan David's favor, one thing that works in all of these major men's players' favor is that they played in a World Cup and now they're seen as super cost-effective options in an era where Chelsea is spending yeah. you know, hundreds of millions of dollars inside four weeks. You can now look at Tejan Buchanan as a cost-effective option where he provides, you know, maybe there's parts of his talent that are a little raw that need to be adjusted for the top five leagues and if he makes a move to Syria or the EPL, um, you know, though, that he has the work ethic and the de- desire and drive. As I said, uh, I was talking to Tejan last week. And the one thing we were talking about is he has played every position on the field, except for center back and goalkeeper over the last 12 months. And so yeah. he's super versatile with Jonathan David. Um, it's a little different. Uh, only early, I believe only early, early Holland in terms of, and I don't know the exact stat, but when you take a look at cumulative goals over the last number of seasons, 
I mean, Erling Holland is on a different, yeah. different universe right now, uh, but Jonathan David has certainly shown, especially with the crazy game that he had a couple, a couple of weeks ago against Lyon, uh, where he scored a hat trick. He is just, he's found his confidence again. And when Jonathan David is confident, he's among the best strikers, best young strikers in Europe. And there was a potential for him to move last year. Didn't necessarily work out, but now he looks at this. Um, he now he looks at this window as potentially a time where, where he can move. But both, and this is, I think, the important point, going back to the point I made about Tejan, it's also very true about um, Jonathan, which is true about Alfonso Davies, which is true about every Canadian player. They're not jumping at any move. They're not just going to jump and say, hey, this European team in this league is batting their eyes at me, so I'm going to give it a shot. Not that I'm saying, not that I'm implying that Canadians in the past have done that, but when you're such a hot, when you're seen as a hot commodity and the appreciation for Canadian soccer, men's soccer especially, has risen as it has over the last, when you really think about it, 12 weeks, 12 to 16 weeks, these men's players are now, they feel like they have a little bit of leverage. So they're like, I don't know if this is the right move for me. So when I look, when I go back to the Tejon Buchanan situation, I don't know if moving to club A is, is, is a good fit for me. Sure. It's in the EPL and maybe it's in a good position, but I want to, I want the best fit. That's, that, that's a fit for me. And say, the same applies for him and potentially Stefan Estacchio, potentially, you know, even Alfonso Davies, who, yeah, you think about where he is now at, at Bayern Munich. And I don't say this with, with any inside information other than to say, if you're considered, at your position, the best in the world, um, wouldn't you want to go ahead and say, "Hey, listen, I'm still quite young. I'm I'm not 25 yet. I'm not 24 yet. What's what's that next move look like for me? What what what's what's the thing? What's the move that's going to benefit me?" And that's, I think, if you're a Canadian soccer fan, the thing that you should be heartened by is that Canadian soccer players, men's players, are now at a point where they're not necessarily calling their own shots because this is still soccer, and you know, yeah. money rules all, and the big clubs rule all. But you now could sit down at the table and say, "What are you? What does this move mean for me?" When Tejon Buchanan comes to, um, when he comes close to July, the transfer window opens. He's sitting at the table, going, "Okay, what position are you playing at?" Because I see myself, my best position is X. Where do you want to play me? You want to play me at Y? Well, maybe this isn't a right fit for me. And that's where that's where mm -hmm. Canadian soccer players and the men's team has now risen to a level where they're not calling their own shots, but they can stand proudly and say. I'm a value to you. I'm worth something to you. Then show me. You mentioned Tejon Buchanan, Johnson. We haven't even talked about Kone. There's been all these guys in the MLS in the past, basically since the run, um, Canada's run to the World Cup that have made that next step from the MLS to uh, leagues in Europe. Who might be the next Canadian or Canadians in the MLS to maybe make big moves abroad? Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. So, um, when you look at the Canadians now, and Ismail Kone probably being the young Canadian that's 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 certainly made a, a move. I mean, you can you can ask yourself, what does it look like for Kamal Miller? Uh, although he's getting uh, a little older, um, does it does he want to be a solid center back in in MLS or does he or does he want to make a move? Um, if, if Max Crapo didn't get doesn't get injured in the MLS Cup. What does what is there potential for him to make a move to Europe? Dane St. Clair and you know the MLS uh, the MLS All Star Game MVP. Is there a is there a potential move for him? Um, is he someone who is going to go ahead and, and raise his profile enough? Um, the one thing a lot of the, a lot of the young players now who uh, are are coming up 
they're they are some they're not only looking at the MLS, but some of them have already made moves uh, to Europe, and they're in um, they're in the youth academies or they're the the U seventeen, U eighteen, U nineteen teams for some big teams in Europe and and you know some middle middle of the pack teams as well. Um, and a lot of in a lot of ways, we're trying to look at right now who the next Tejan Buchanan is, who the next Alistair Johnston is, because when you look at those players specifically and Ishmael Esmail Kone as well. We uh, nobody knew who Tejan literally nobody knew who Tejan Buchanan was three years ago or three and a half years ago. Um, very few people knew who Alistair Johnston was because he was playing in League One Ontario. So, part of what we're doing right now is there's a way in, you, to look at it. We're kind of scouting for who the next player is going to be uh, in three years' time, and I think it's going to be key in in two very very particular positions. And and John Herdman has, has brought in uh, a few guys in this window. Um, who are graduates of of this CPL, who've now gone on to playing in, with some teams in Europe. But goalkeeper and central defender are huge for Canada. Um, if you're looking at every other position on the field, Canada is pretty much covered. Um, certainly, you know, Atiba Hutchinson, many would love to him to play forever, but you look at himself and uh, Steve Vittoria, uh, maybe you look at Milan Borian as well and, and say, okay, they're getting older. What's John Herdman's next step? Um, what's, mm -hmm. what's his, what's his plan going to be for those guys, but especially at the center back position, because as, as well as Victoria and as well as Kamal Miller played for large parts of the qualify, qualification campaign into the world cup, Canada needs to be stronger and deeper there. And a goalkeeper as well, Canada needs to be stronger and deeper there as well. So, if there's two positions on the field that I would say to, can to Canadians, hey, listen, focus on these and see where the next guys are coming up because it would be huge if these guys, if, if Canada can solidify itself with depth and talent, excuse me, at that at those two positions, then qualification is going to be a lot easier because from the top, we look at Jonathan David and Kyle, like Canada's best 11 right now would be Jonathan David, Kyle Aaron, and behind them, Stefan Estacchio. And perhaps maybe you still look at Atiba Hutchinson if he wants to contribute, as he will in this window. And then on the right, you could have Tejon Buchanan. On the left, you could have certain Richie Larea. Um, you look back behind you, certainly now Steve Vittoria and Kamal Miller, as I mentioned. But, you know, certainly on the left side, uh, Alfonso Davies has played anywhere and everywhere. And on the right side, in a 4-4-2, you have Alistair Johnston. Canada has a very strong lineup. Like, mm -hmm. and, and when you look at compared to the United States, can, Canadian players are starting in Europe um, at a greater rate than they are in the United States. And so even though the States have far more, have far more talent, bigger population, more established system right now, the Canadian talent, the, the talent that Canada has at its best is playing with some of the best in the, some of the best leagues in Europe. So, um, but center back and goalkeeper, those are the two parts of the field that over the next number of years, every fan should be keeping an eye on. Lastly, before, before I let you go, I want to, I want to ask about John Herdman. Obviously he's been just the architect of this team making the world cup. I think most people would say they won't, they don't make the world cup in 2022 without him. Now he was linked to the New Zealand job. He refuted it kind of all in how likely do you think it is that John Herdman is the manager in 2026 when Canada plays its first game at on home soil? Well, I asked him twice in Qatar. I asked him first on the field and then I asked him in the tunnel afterwards and he gave me the same answer. Um, 
and uh, on the broadcast, uh, my good, my good, my good friend and colleague, Jenny Becky was like, okay, Shinedi, you asked them enough, which is, are you going to be here? Are, you know, are you going to be here? Because as I said before, the, the thing about John Herdman, that is when you speak to the women's players in particular, I've spoken to Diana Matheson about this and Janine Becky, there is an appreciation for the value that Herdman gives and makes his players feel like they have. And mm-hmm. that's really, really critical and crucial to a country that prior to John Herdman coming here uh, in 2010, 11, 12, Canada didn't have a sense of self-confidence. Women didn't have it. They gained it and it propelled them to their greatest, uh, an incredible uh, 10-year run you can't compare to. Um, The men now are in a a position at a time in their history that they have never been. They are, okay, they're 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 out in around 50th in the world, but that's not really a reflection of the kind of talent and team they have. That's more of a reflection of they haven't really played a lot of games against top opponents, and the and, they, and when they have done that, it hasn't necessarily gone their way. Um, but the one thing that I can I can say about Herdman is he has given all of those players in the men's team a sense of as that sense of leverage I just spoke about that comes from John Herdman because he's a master motivator, as I said, and a recruiter, as I said, and his messaging has been so key to delivering these guys on the men's team from basically nowhere on the on the in the men's game to the world cup and it was so critical for them to get to 2022 to feel that sense of accomplishment to go to bmo field to beat jamaica to have the country going crazy going nuts irrespective of all the stuff with the csa Mm -hmm. but to feel like holy crap we did this We, we 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 made it all the way to the mountaintop because now when you're looking at a new leadership team going into 2026, you're looking at, as I already mentioned, the Stephen Stackers, the Alistair Johnsons, the Tejon Buchanan's, the Ismail Kones. All of these guys, you're looking at them and you're saying, they know what it's like to get to a World Cup. Ismail Kone knows what it's like beyond playing the championship. He knows what it's like to play at a World Cup. Mm-hmm. And that's huge for a young player like that. Um, but the challenge that that Herdman's going to have now is, is – developing and revolutionizing and tinkering with and all the on all the words and adjectives you want to use in terms of his playing style canada played a super aggressive playing style in in qatar they were on the front foot a lot uh and it really benefited them because the one lifelong regret that every canadian i can tell you the many on the men's team have and every canadian fan will have is that game against belgium because canada should have had something for that game irrespective of alfonso davies penalty they deserved if not a win, at very least a draw uh, yeah. from that game. Um, and how do you take that knowing that a savvy Belgian team who weren't very good uh, were able to squeak out a result? And then you went to a um, against a Croatian team that weathered the storm for 20 minutes, went down, and then were able to work themselves into the game. And mm-hmm. then you go against uh, a team against Morocco where, quite frankly, the only reason Canada lost that game is because of two mistakes they made in the first half. And if not for those two mistakes, Canada looks at another result. And you know, Atiba Hutchinson hitting that that header late on, you're looking at at least two games that Canada should have taken something from. And that comes down to 
not just motivation, not just rah, 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 not just this talk of brotherhood we've heard. It comes down to coaching at the critical moments knowing, okay, we need a little tinkering here, a little tinkering there. And this is not a criticism of John Herdman. It's just a fact. The men learned a lot about that stage and what it requires in terms of, you know, physical, mental, emotional, psychological engagement. It's so intense in every respect from the moment the first ball kicks off to the moment, whether you get to the world cup final, or you're eliminated. It doesn't stop. I mean, I, I, I felt it. I was mm-hmm. there, but as a coach, it doesn't stop either. And if anything, there's so much more on you as a coach because you're expected to manage the emotions and the players and the training and all this. And, you know, John Herdman, I'm sure will come back with a lot of, with a lot of takeaways. And as much as that's why him being a part of the men's team for 2026 is critical, not because of continuity, because I imagine John Herdman looks at this men's team, looks at the talent that he has and said, we should have done more at this. Yeah. World Cup. Maybe we don't come out of the, maybe we don't come out of the group stage, but we should have, we should have tied a game or two, or maybe we should have won one and drawn the other game. Knowing him, knowing how obsessed he is about details, doubtlessly he's gone through his head millions of times and said the couldas, the wouldas, the shouldas, and now looks at 2026 going, this is, we're going to be on home soil. We're going to have the advantages of being a host nation at the World Cup. We can't take that for granted. He'll want to be better prepared. He will be better prepared, and he'll make sure his his players are, are the same. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on and taking the time to come on this podcast. Um, I just wanted to give you the floor. Is there anything you're working on, any pieces that people should kind of keep their eyes and ears open for at, at TSN? Well, I will I, I will say um, two things. Uh, as a lifelong New York Jets fan, when <laughs> if Aaron Rodgers makes the, uh, makes the move, I have put out a, uh, we've already put a, a quick feature together about that. Okay. Um, I can, I can certainly tell you, I'm not overly excited about it, but it's just a feature just reflecting on, uh, the fact that when Aaron Rodgers, if he does in fact suit up as the starting quarterback of the New York Jets, he will immediately become the greatest quarterback in New York Jets history. That's even compared to Joe Namath. Um, so we did we did something fun and interesting with that. Uh, I would say get ready for the summer. We've got some things cooking. Uh, we're ready for if those big moves happen. Uh, we expect to be there and we expect to be at the forefront uh, waiting and super eager uh, to report on what Jonathan David's move will be, what Tejan Buchanan's move will be, what any what any, what any Canadian and their next move will be. So, look forward to that. And 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 the one thing I'm super excited about is last year was juggling a lot of stuff in in you know from MLS to Canadian men's national team to CFL. I'm very excited to know to feel like I can focus a lot on the CFL this. Mm-hmm. This, um, this summer because it's a league that if if not for that I don't go to the World Cup if not for the CFL I don't know if I have a career at TSN so I'm looking forward to uh, mm-hmm. to getting back to some football well I'm I'm really excited for for the CFL and the the moves I hope uh, Jonathan David goes to my Manchester United and I hope my Red Blacks aren't the worst team in the CFL this year so thanks so much uh, Matthew for for taking the time and coming on I knew there was something I liked. I liked about you, Alex, as a as a fellow United fan as well. So I appreciate you having me. Great, on. great, thank you.